So we start a new series today uh, called The Rebuilders, which, uh, thank you, huge for the design. Um, so we're doing a 12-part series uh, going through uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah, which is both the narrative of the people of God returning from exile and the prophetic voices speaking into that of weeks is something of this narrative and what it means for us. Um, and hopefully, as we look at it, I, my hope is that it will kind of encourage us, inspire us, give us some shape and form to, I think, part of where we are at in, in our lives and uh, as a church. Um, and, and will help us reframe things. And so this morning, we're gonna, I'm going to try and do a little bit of an introduction. And in that introduction, we're going to have a little bit of a history and biblical theology lesson. So, you hold on to your seats. If this is a little too theological, um, I, I apologize. Um, but um, I, I hope it gives us some context that will set us up for the next uh, 11 weeks. So why are we doing this series? Um, I, I think essentially what happened to me is about two and a bit years ago, I, I would go to the Royal Parkade with a friend of mine and we would go and we'd chat up on the top of the Royal Parkade and we'd pray and chat and talk about things there. And uh, I mean, we've been him and I have been praying for revival for about 18 years and uh, uh, longing for revival. And, and something in that moment, I, I'm not 100% sure why I said this, but I remember saying to him, I said, I think we need to reframe how we think about revival using Ezra instead of Elijah. Um, and some of you have heard me talk uh, about this a about a year ago, I think I speaked on the Ezra-Elijah dilemma at Harbor City. And um, um, the funny thing is, I, is Ezra, I mean, Ezra is like a no one in scripture. I don't know if you've ever heard anyone really preach on Ezra. Um, I, if you've been in church a while, like who preaches out of the book of Ezra? Uh, I mean, like no one really does. Jesus didn't even quote Ezra. There's only like 10 books that are not quoted in, uh, by Jesus. And there's like three that aren't quoted at all in the New Testament. Ezra is one of them. So like, I mean, Ezra is like that nothing book. Um, and he's like that nothing guy, like who's Ezra? Does anyone know who Ezra is? Like maybe we just know the book. Um, but Ezra is a potent force in, in essentially the rebuilding of Israel post-exile. Um, and he is a person who some theologians believe is responsible for the Old Testament making its way through exile and returning back uh, to, to Israel when they, when they come back. I mean, he is a potent force. He gets up and reads the Bible for a very long period of time, like a long time. Can you imagine that, me getting up at like six in the morning and then reading till 12 and we're all sitting here. But while we're sitting here, revival breaks out. I mean, can you even fathom that? Like most of us, once I've read the Bible for like five minutes, we'll be like, um... Can someone put the cappuccino machine on? We're going to need another one if this is going to continue. Like, but Ezra does that, and he, he reads the Bible for 
a long period of time. And while he's reading it, it says that there's scribes that walk among the people and help them understand what he's reading. Um, and then, as Nehemiah 8 tells us, that while this is going on, there's a revival amongst the people. The people come alive to God's ways in a new and, and fresh way. And, uh, and I was thinking about this. And then the riots happened. Um, and I think for, for many of us during the riots, it's quite a traumatic process uh, living in a city where there is so much upheaval um, that it, it impacts you. You're like, wow, we are way more unstable than maybe we thought we were. There's a lot of upheaval. And then you just see in, in the absolute natural, you see stuff that needs to be rebuilt. I live in Pinetown, and Pinetown got hit pretty hard in, in, in the kind of CBD. And you drove through Pinetown, shortly after the, the riots, and you were like, man, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be rebuilt. Um, but then you realize like, the rebuilding is not just a physical thing. Like, our, our society is still struggling with the process of being rebuilt uh, post-apartheid regime. Um, and which got me thinking about this particular narrative um, which is the, what I call the Ezra-Nehemiah narrative, which is how does a people come back from absolute desolation? How do they come back from desolation? How do they rebuild themselves? How do they rebuild a city, a culture, worship, an identity um, that has been taken from them, destroyed? How do they do that? And that's why I think something of what we want to look at in this narrative is ask that question, like how do we rebuild? How do we rebuild a city? How do we rebuild a church? Harbour City is in the process of rebuilding itself. How do we rebuild a culture, a society, a people um, post-exile? Um, and that's something of what this narrative talks about. So this morning, I want to talk about two kind of big themes that run through this narrative, but run through Scripture uh, from start to end. And it's, a, it's the themes of exile and exodus. Two E's, exile and exodus. Um, and uh, so I want to give us a brief kind of overview of these themes. And hopefully, as we get an idea of these themes, I'm hoping that it will apply to our lives as well. And hopefully, pique an interest for our series, because we're going to be in it for 12 weeks. So if you're not interested, it's going to be a tough uh, next three months. Um, so exile and exodus, two big themes. They're two big kind of biblical motifs that help us understand uh, the story of Scripture and help us understand uh, who we are and what God is doing. So, shall we start with uh, exile? So, exile is the state of being away from home. You know, when someone is in exile, they are either in banishment or um, in refugee kind of thing, but they, they are away from home. And home is often seen, and I know this is not 
the case for everyone, but generally home is seen as a place of safety, a place of comfort, a place of warmth, a place uh, where you un are understood and understand how things work. Uh, that's home. Exile is being banished or out of that place. That's kind of um, what exile is. And what happens in the Jerusalem story, what happens in the Israel story at this point is, is the people are in exile. They're in Babylon. And I'm going to read from 2 Kings so we can understand a little bit about the exile that uh, they face. Um, so in 2 Kings 25, it says, Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, his whole army, he encamped outside the city and built built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. So for about two years, Babylon is around uh, the, the city, uh, the Babylon army. And uh, so you must understand, like at that point, they've got no way of getting food in. They are beginning to starve. So by the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled at night through the gates between the two walls near the king's garden, through the Babylon, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. So the army that breaks through, this is the funny part, the army that breaks through is not the Babylonian army. This is the Israelite army breaking through their own walls to try and escape the famine. Well, are those people, they're leaving everyone else behind. They're like, sorry guys, we're tapping out. Um, anyway, and uh, they fled towards the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. And let's go on a little bit forward. And uh, it says, On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the command of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The command of the imperial guard took away the censers and sprinkler bowls and all that were made of pure gold or silver. So basically what happens is Israel... They rebel against God. And uh, exile is, in one sense, 
a form of judgment, a form of, of discipline. And the Babylonians come, and we get a snippet into this, but the Babylonians come, and they come essentially in three waves. Uh, the first wave, they take away the nobles. They take away the educated. Daniel was probably in the first wave of people that uh, were, were taken away. So if you know the story of Daniel. He's in Nebuchadnezzar's court, uh, etc. He's probably in the first wave of people that get taken away into exile. But what happens is this guy, uh, Zedekiah, he rebels against Babylonian rule. So I don't know what happens. He obviously thinks, oh, you know what? Nebuchadnezzar, who is he? We can stand against him. He rebels. And then eventually, um, they encamp around the city of Jerusalem. Famine comes, and then they take off, take away the next wave of people. And then finally, the third wave comes. And the third wave is the utter destruction of the city. Um, so what historians say is that by the end of the third wave, everything is done. The walls, the walls have been torn down. The houses have been smashed. The temple has been gutted. The city is burned. Like Jerusalem is done. It has been smashed. They take off everyone, and this is an important fact, uh, which we will hear about towards the end of the series, is they leave some people behind. The poorest of the poor, they leave behind, essentially to become farmers for the Babylonian empire. But everyone else is taken. The people of God, the, the tribes of, of Judah and Jerusalem has been smashed. They have been smashed. And the way the Babylonian kind of way would work is this is how they work. They would take people into Babylon and they would want to reenculturate them. So they would want to destroy the culture in every way possible. They did not want Jerusalem people. They did not want Israel people to see themselves as Israelites. They wanted to destroy the culture. So they would destroy the places of worship. They would destroy the city. They would take the, the, the most knowledgeable people and try and reinculturate those people into the Babylonian way of life. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar and those who followed him have essentially tried to, in every way, destroy the Jewish identity. They've gone into exile. They've gone as slaves into another place. They're living in this place that is not their home, away from their city that has been burnt down in a culture that is trying to destroy their identity. This is exile. What it means to live in exile in Babylon. And they're hoping because in Jeremiah 25, it says that in 70 years after they've gone off into exile, God will bring his people back. So they go into exile amidst great persecution, amidst slavery, amidst the tension of every day their identity being trashed. As you know from the story of Daniel, for him to rebel meant that he would risk being to the lions. Like, in every way, they are trying to destroy their Jewish identity. But they are living with this hope that God will send them back. Uh, this is the Babylonian exile. But the Babylonian exile is just a picture of another exile. Uh, it's the exile from Eden. Uh, so if we go to, all the way back to Genesis 3, 
like I said, we, we're going to do a little bit of an overview here, if that's okay. Um, Genesis 3, um, probably most of us will know the story of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, you know, they eat the forbidden fruit, um, and, uh, which they shouldn't have done. Um, but in, in eating the, the forbidden fruit, they sin against God. And then right at the end of, of that, the narrative of Adam and Eve's sin, it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. He, play, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the first exile. Adam and Eve sin against God. What happens? They get exiled from the Garden of Eden. They get exiled from paradise, essentially, from uh, the, the home that God first uh, created for mankind. They are in exile. They're in the state of exile, being outside of the garden and actually not being able to come back. But one of the things that we learn about Genesis 3 is that exile is both it is both discipline or judgment and it is God's redemptive activity at work. So exile is this discipline of like, hey, you need to be out of the garden. But it's like this, hey, you need to be out of the garden because I am making a way, I'm gonna make a way back for you to eat from the tree of life. Because if you eat from the tree of life in this current state, without redemption, without Jesus, it is gonna be disastrous for you. So exile is, is both this picture of judgment. God's people are judged because of their sin, but it's also God's gracious hand in holding them back from being in a complete disastrous state. God is going to rescue his people through Jesus. He's going to bring people back to uh, what we learn, Zion, the city of God. He's gonna bring people back to Zion. But before he brings people out of exile, he's gonna provide one who will completely redeem them, Jesus, which is part of the story. But what we learn is that exile is part of the state of the human condition. Uh, around BC 300 and 200 and that period of time, it starts with Ezra and Nehemiah, you get Jewish kind of theologians talking that exile is, no, is not just the state of the people of God in Babylon, it is the ex existential state of the human condition. Uh, that uh, exile is the best way to understand how we are, who we are, that we are exiles. We are people who are living away from the garden. We're living in a state of human corruption in, in some sense. We're living banished from paradise, awaiting God's redemptive activity through Christ, who's going to bring us 
into Zion. Exile is the challenge of everyone. So Ezra says this, he says, you know, we are back in the land, but we are still slaves. And slavery is the defining feature of being in exile. Jesus says that whoever sins is a slave to sin. He uses the same language that Ezra and Nehemiah use to talk about a state of being in exile while being in the land. How can you be in exile when you are living at home? It's because our ultimate human condition is one of alienation from God. Exile. Uh, Does that make sense? So if you've ever used the words of like pain, corruption, tragedy, loneliness, sin, uh, words like that to describe your own life at some point, you're describing your life in terms of exile, that you are in a state that you acknowledge is not quite what it should be. You are in Tim Mackey says this, he says, exile is the human condition, this pattern of human corruption leading to a Babylon that we can't escape. Exile is the human condition. We are living away from our true home. We're in Durban and we use terms like corruption, alienation, pain, tragedy, loneliness, whatever terms we, we want to use, you know, uh, violence, crime, all these terms that acknowledge that there's something wrong with the state in which, with the state of the world in which we live in, we are acknowledging the human exile problem. The exodus is going to be to the promised land called Cape Town. (laughs) And that when we get there, Everything is going to be fixed. Um, I, I heard a quote by Meghan Markle, which uh, possible way. But Meghan Markle on her show said, going to South Africa was the bravest thing that she's ever done. And I was like, wait a minute, you went to Cape Town with a whole entourage of like people that looked after you. I was like, how is that the bravest thing you've ever done? Like, and also, how is that not offensive to everyone in South Africa? Anyway, so she obviously doesn't think Cape Town is the exodus, but uh, many people do. Like, if we have to be honest, like, our hope is that if we just move to another place, if we go on an exodus, from one place to another, from one country to another, that we are going to escape the perpetual problem of exile. God can't move us on, and this is not saying that for some people, movement is part of God's plan. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is that exile is the state of humanity. Whether we're in Durban facing riots, or whether you're on the beach of the Bahamas sipping tequilas or whatever it is that people do when they're on holiday on the beach. Like wherever it is that you are, we all struggle with the fact that we are living in exile. We're living apart from God in the true existence that he wants us to be in. We're not living in Zion yet. 
And Cape Town is not Zion, Belito is not Zion, uh, the Bahamas are not Zion. We are in exile, hoping uh, for the new Exodus. Uh, so that brings me to Exodus. Has that been okay? Are you okay? You're tracking with me so far? Sure. This is a lot. Even I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> Don't go to Cape Town, guys. Bless. Who's going to Cape Town? Bless you. Bless you. So Exodus. Now, Exodus is really, really important. Uh, as exile is important in understanding who we are, Exodus is equally as important. So in Jewish tradition, it is kind of understood that the beginning of the story of the people of God is not Genesis, it's Exodus. Genesis is the backstory. It's kind of like if you read Lord of the Rings. You know, Lord of the Rings comes out first and you read the, the, the kind of three books and you get the story and then you read the Hobbit which goes into like the backstory. Genesis is like the 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 backstory, the prequel, I, I think, uh, is, is what they call it. So like Star Wars, you know Star Wars starts four, five, and six, and then you watch one, two, and three, they come a whole lot later, that gives you kind of the story of the, the before story, tells us how uh, we got to four, five, and six. Exodus is the start of the story. It's, uh, it's the start of the people of God, in one sense, finding their national identity, finding their identity as a people together. Um, and so we find that in Egypt. God's people are in exile. They're in exile in Egypt. It says in Genesis that God's people will go into Egypt for 400 years. But after 400 years, he will bring his people out. And Exodus is the story of God's redemptive activity bringing his people out of Egypt. So in Exodus 2 and 3, we, we get these really amazing verses um, that talks about God hearing the cry of his people and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Walter Brueggemann says this. He says, it is the cry that inaugurates history. It is the cry, the crying out. It's like this is the start of history. God's people crying out in their exile, in their slavery, and God reaches out to them and brings them out into a land flowing with milk and honey. That is Exodus. Exodus is God's redemptive activity of how he reaches into human history and brings the people out of slavery for himself. We see that in Ezra chapter one. God's people are in exile. And what happens is the Babylonian people have taken them in exile and God in his use of of human history, uh, uses a man called Cyrus, who's the, the first king of the 
the major empire of Persia. He uses Cyrus, who he prophesied about a hundred years beforehand. Uh, in, in Isaiah, it says that God will use a king Cyrus to bring his people out of ex, uh, exile. God uses Cyrus to bring his people out of exile into uh, his land. It is, as some theologians say, the new exodus. This is how God works. People are in exile. They are slaves. They are stuck. They are facing the challenges that we mentioned, all those kind of words, alienated, lonely, stuck, slave, in a place that is not their home. God brings those people out. In Ezra chapter 1, we see Cyrus issuing a decree, allowing the people of God to return from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. So if exile is the existential human condition, uh, as as one writer said, if exile is the existential human condition, then exodus is God's redemptive action. So if exile is the state which we find ourselves in, exodus is the activity in which God brings us out of that state into his promised land, into his kingdom, into new creation. And so what we see is if, if Ezra and the Nehemiah narrative is the new exodus, as all the theologians say, it may be the new, but it's not the final exodus. What we see is Jesus being the new and better and greater Moses who leads people into the new and ultimate Exodus, that a people who are enslaved to sin and brokenness and corruption in this world are led by Christ through his redemptive activity on the cross into a new exodus, into a land flowing with milk and honey, into the kingdom of God, new creation. And we see that in many ways. The writers are not oblivious to this. They are, are using Exodus themes when they talk about Jesus. So, so eating the bread and the wine, the, the communion in which we have when we break the bread and the wine is the same as when the people of God would have eaten the lamb and painted the blood on the door frames in Exodus. Uh, you're seeing the meal that is instituted at the Passover of, of Exodus is the meal that is instituted by Jesus before his death. That he is pointing that what he is coming to do is a new and ultimate Exodus. Jesus talks about when he, when he says this, he says, as I am lifted up, um, I will draw all men unto myself. But he, he's talking about the story where Moses raises up the, the snake, the staff. And in, in the, the Exodus story, Moses raises up the staff and all the people who are sick and being bitten by snakes, when they look at the staff, they are healed. And Jesus says, I myself, 
like that will be raised up. And when I am raised up, I will draw all men to himself. He's pointing back to Exodus, that he is the new, greater, ultimate Exodus that we are hoping for. Exile is the state in which we find ourselves. Durban is in a state of exile. We are in a state where the brokenness of humanity is so evident in our society. South Africa is in a state of exile. We're where the brokenness of our humanity is so evident. We thought we were coming into an exodus in our new democratic society, but the brokenness of our society was never healed and rebuilt. Exile is the state. But God in his grace, God in his grace through Jesus Christ looks into the state of humanity, the brokenness, the exile, the loneliness you feel, the disconnectedness that you feel, the the constant struggle that you have that maybe you do not fit in, the struggle that you have with your own sinfulness, that you do things, as Paul says, that you do things that you wished you didn't do. Exile. But God hears the cry of his people. He sees the affliction of his people. And as we see in Jesus, he is moved with compassion. Break into our exile story. It's part of the way that we understand how God is at work in the world and how God is at work in your life. You and I struggle with the realities of exile but we also are faced with the hope of exodus because of Jesus. Which leads me to our conclusion. Um, And hopefully, just to give us a quick overview of what we want to cover. But leads us to the rebuilders, which is the story that, which is the title that we've called the series. And the rebuilders are the people who are involved in the Exodus narrative. They're the people who are responsible for turning a group of exiles into a new community. The rebuilders are the people that come back engaged uh, by God, equipped by God to rebuild a post-exilic community. And uh, what we see in, in Ezra and Nehemiah is we see that they have to rebuild essentially four things. There's a lot that they have to rebuild, but I'll try and summarize it in four simple things as we close. They have to rebuild worship. They have to rebuild the temple. They have to rebuild their identity. Their identity has been smashed. They have to rebuild their identity. They have to rebuild community. Um, I don't know if you've thought about this when you think about the exile story, but 
Israelites in captivity, in exile, were actually thriving in Babylon. They'd built houses, they'd seemed to get on with industry, they'd managed to find their way. Like, what would make them return? Imagine returning to Jerusalem. You're returning to a city that has been smashed, absolutely smashed. You're returning to a place where there's rubble on the ground, where there's no homes that you're coming to. Like, what would make them leave their way of life and come back to a bunch of rubble to rebuild? God puts on their own heart, as we see. God moves them. He moves the people to rebuild their identity, to rebuild themselves as a people of God, to rebuild community. What does community life look like? To rebuild society. And we see them rebuilding the structures of society, rebuilding the economics of society. And at the end, which is probably the part that we're most familiar with, we see Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of the city. But a people come back to rebuild, to rebuild worship, identity, community, society, to rebuild what it means to be the people of God, to rebuild security and safety and family and all the different structures, to rebuild their identity as the people of God, to rebuild their identity as Jewish people in that day, to rebuild um, things like synagogues and temples. And they came back to be Rebuilders. And I say, I love that term because that is part of what your and our job is here and now. God is rolling out new creation in the world. He's doing that. We're only going to see it in fulfillment when Jesus returns. But for now, he's rolling out new creation reality in this world. He's rolling out the kingdom of God through his people, the church. And he's using rebuilders to turn an exile story into an exodus story. He's using rebuilders to turn the brokenness of humanity into the life of the kingdom of God in society. He's using rebuilders to, re, to change the shape of what Glenwood and Durban can look like. Using rebuilders to take Harbor City, a church that has been affected by COVID and riots and movement and migration, a, a church that finds itself in some sense in exile. He's using rebuilders to reshape and rebuild and we go through the next 12 weeks. I think my hope is that we will both be inspired and equipped to kind of take something of the framework that is laid out over these four books and to take the hope that is laid out and to feel challenged and inspired to rebuild, to take the state of exile that we are in, have all come from, and to move it into a state of exodus, a new creation reality. And God wants to do that with Harbor City. He wants to do that in Durban. And he wants to do that with your own life. Just as I close, you know, 
I think the reality is, is that some of us feel like our very own lives. We don't just feel like this is the state of Durban or Harbour City. We feel like our very own lives are in exile. If you had to think of all the words that you would use to describe yourself, they would be exile terms. You feel lonely. You feel broken. You feel alienated. You feel like you've got no friends. You feel like you're living in a state away from home. Walks into your reality through his death and resurrection, invites you to a new creation life. He is the one that looks at your brokenness and sin and provides a way for forgiveness. If that is you, the exile is internal. And if that is you, the exodus is not just out there, a rebuilding of turban. It is a rebuilding of new creation, life within, through Christ. Can I pray? Lord, I pray. Scriptures that give us hope of Genesis, things look dismal as Moses brings people out of Egypt as you bring exiles back into Jerusalem and as Christ brings a people enslaved by sin into the freedom of the kingdom of God I thank you Lord that you give us unshakable hope with your work and your death and resurrection and so Lord I pray for people who may feel right now like they're stuck in a state of exile. Oh Lord, I pray that your grace would be revealed, that you, Christ, would be new and greater Moses, the one who sticks his staff into the Red Sea and provides a way out. Weeks of rebuilders, as we think about exile and exodus, as we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts a role to play in the rebuilding of worship, that you would help us be involved in this new creation, Exodus, kingdom of God at work in the world. In Jesus' name.